I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. You're listening to the Executives Exchange, where we have the privilege of hosting Dr. Joanne Pike, President and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association. Tune in as we spotlight the crucial fight against Alzheimer's and dementia and learn how the Alzheimer's Association continues to pave the way toward a brighter future for those impacted by this challenging disease. Dr. Joanne Pike has been associated with the Alzheimer's Association since 2016, when she served as the Chief Programs Officer and the Chief Strategy Officer before assuming her current role as the President of the Association. Prior to her tenure with the Association, she held leadership positions for 13 years at the American Cancer Society and served as the Executive Director for the Preventative Health Partnership for three years. Dr. Pike, it's really nice to meet you. Can you start way at the beginning and tell us about your early childhood and where you grew up? Yeah, it's great to be with you. You know, I'm the youngest of three with two older brothers. Um, My parents moved around quite a bit, but the most time I spent in my childhood was in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in a small town of around 500 people that is in the foothills of the Cascades, close to a national forest. You know, I started working at about 14, either waiting tables at my best friend's parents' burger joint or at one of the Christmas tree farms in our town. It was certainly um, idyllic and beautiful. But growing up in a rural community uh, where the closest grocery store or healthcare system is about an hour away, it certainly gives you perspective on how to create access and certainly health access that is quite unique. So with that upbringing, you know, you would eventually end up pursuing a degree in uh, psychology and philosophy. So, um, you know, how, how did you get from, you know, underst- wanting to understand that access better to choosing those particular degrees? Sure. I can't say I know what the inspiration for the degree was, but I know it was an expectation that I was going to go to college. Um, I'm the first generation college graduate in my family. Mm-hmm. I don't think the type of degree really mattered. It was just an expectation that I was going to be the first to finish. Um, And it was really more of a journey of what did I enjoy? What did I like? And so the social sciences and human behavior were some of those interests that really grabbed me. And really eventually, while I started with a psychology and philosophy degree, led me to my doctorate in public health as a discipline overall. So the the degrees in psychology and philosophy, that kind of ended up Um, influencing your personal and professional development? I would say so, yeah. I mean, I started my career as a therapist, and I ended up discovering public health through that journey. Um, And here I am today, certainly, you know, trying to impact at a large scale Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So let's dig into maybe some of your um, your personal side a little bit. Have there been specific experiences or challenges related to health that shaped your perspective or approach to life? Sure. 
Um, you know, for years I watched my mother be a caregiver for her mother, um, who eventually passed away of complications due to cardiovascular disease. And she died with what we assume was vascular dementia. And the caregiving she provided, while I'm sure she would say was fulfilling, I know, and she wouldn't change it, but the time it took away from her life and the stress changed her quality of life. And we know that caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's or a related dementia has a significant impact on individuals. And while rewarding, it also results in more anxiety, depression, and poor quality of life. You know, in America, there are over 11 million caregivers for someone with dementia in the, uh, across the U.S. today. Majority are women, and a quarter of them are sandwich generation caregivers, caring for both children and a parent. One of the things that I often reflect on as a leader is it's not just personal, but also understanding what our employees face with this. How can we build an environment that is supportive to them knowing these stats about who is impacted and that we have baby boomers aging into a time that may require more caregiving by our workforce? Well, you know, given that that stress that you're describing that goes into that kind of caretaking how, how do you think your past experience with the American Cancer Society and the Preventative Health Partnership helped you get ready for this, this current role with Alzheimer's? There are certainly um, leadership lessons throughout my career. However, I might highlight two specific areas. First, with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, which was the focus of the Preventive Health Partnership, all of these are diseases with long histories of advances in medicine, whether treatment, diagnostics, or care. And being able to deliver care in the health system, measure the outcomes, while also building active participation with consumers and being able to advocate for healthcare is considered commonplace within those diseases today. And it may not always happen perfectly, but it is accepted practice. We're at that stage in Alzheimer's and related dementia's history that we're turning that same corner. For the first time, we have disease-modifying treatments that have been approved by the FDA. We have a pathway to reimbursement through Medicare. And we have innovations in diagnostics and care models that will change the course of diagnosis, whether that's in primary care or specialty care, along with providing better person-centered care throughout that disease journey. Being able to apply what we've learned from those other chronic diseases and build an effective medical model for Alzheimer's in this new era of treatment is quite honestly an incredible moment. Um, applying those public health principles and approaches where you look at community and build capability is we're on the front end of that. And that's work that we can learn from, from past successes and other diseases but it's certainly an exciting point to be at that place with Alzheimer's. Anytime there is rapid innovation and new delivery, there is product opportunity. And one of those core investments the Alzheimer's Association is making right now is in scaling products that provide greater physician and consumer access to evidence-based care, like continuing medical education, guideline development, support tools for individuals. And those, again, are all things that we have seen within the cancer, heart disease, diabetes space that we can reflect on and apply in Alzheimer's and dementia care. I, I love hearing about how you can take some of the, the past experiences and, and study of, of other diseases and, and parlay them into, into what you're doing today. 
and I guess I'd like to um, translate that a little bit into your your personal life. So you've been in the public health arena now for for 25 years. Um, can you can you talk about some of your experiences or, or lessons learned during that career, how you o- overcame them, and then how you've been able to apply that in your new role as president and CEO of your current organization? Yeah, I think, you know, we all got a really good lesson in public health leadership with our collective COVID response. You know, in our own organizational reaction to COVID, we learned quite a bit about what we could do, the culture that we create, and how we can codify some of that into our organizational behavior today. During that time, we really thought about how do we over-communicate? How do we make sure that our employees, our volunteers, our constituents know what need to happen to protect them while also, you know, making sure that we're moving our mission forward because Alzheimer's and dementia does not stop um, during a pandemic. And in fact, our constituents were, you know, in particular, very vulnerable in that moment. Um, So we tried to be, you know, to over-communicate be transparent about decisions that we were making, discussions that we were having as a leadership team and with the community leadership, with all of our staff. And we discovered that we had an agility muscle that we could flex pretty well. Um, And we have continued with some of these areas today. For example, while we certainly today don't need a weekly all-staff town hall like we did at that time, we have implemented communication strategies to make sure that um, transparency stays at the core of the work we're doing with our team. Well, that was certainly an era where we all learned to uh, to care for each other, and uh, and the communication part was was absolutely essential. Um, you told us a little bit about um, your mother taking on the role of, of caretaker for your grandmother. Um, would you, have you had any other personal experiences with Alzheimer's that you could share with us? You know, I think one of the um, one of the things that we do as an organization is include individuals who are living with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia within our leadership team and within advisory groups. So the Alzheimer's Association has a group of individuals living in the early stages of Alzheimer's or related dementia that act as advisors and spokespeople. They're called the early stage advisory group. And for around 17 years, two members of our early stage advisory group are on our national board of directors. Um, They have two-year terms each. They're fundamentally imperative to our governance as an organization. Um, Their lived experience is a reminder of why they need to be at the heart of our decision-making. And one of our um, current early stage advisors and board members, Joe, recently spoke at our annual scientific meeting, um, at our Alzheimer's Association International Conference. His focus was really on what we are seeing today in these newly approved treatments that are coming out of the pipeline and what they mean to him. And he spoke about how those treatments provide hope for time, when certainly time is the most critical measure of progress against this disease right now time with family, time making memories, time to make choices about his own health care, time before the disease progresses too far. And it puts a very personal perspective on any scientific debate 
when you hear an individual talk about their own lived experience with the disease and why these scientific debates, political debates, are so important to them. And ultimately, it's always just an incredible reminder when you have someone that is close to you um, that provides that level of meaning and understanding of what benefit truly means. And benefit of more time um, is incredibly important right now for our constituents. You know, I think that would be something very meaningful for a lot of people in our audience to hear. And, you know, we all in, in one way or another are, are touched by, by this disease. Um, do you have for, for all of us, um, you know, individuals, families, you know, um, some advice, you know, what, what kind of recommendations do you have? What kind of resources should we be looking for? Um, help us out. Yeah. The Alzheimer's Association certainly it was built at its core on providing care and support and resources to communities nationwide. It's important to know that if you or a loved one are faced with this as a caregiver or someone newly diagnosed, you're not alone. Um, and you do not need to carry this alone. There are more than 6 million Americans who are living with Alzheimer's today. And the support, information, and local resources that we can provide an individual and a family as they go through this journey is available to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's available at alz.org, our website, and also through our helpline, 1-800-272-3900, where we have master's level clinicians available to assist. And no matter what your question is, uh, may, may it be about dementia or a need for support, we're here to help. Okay, that's excellent information. And uh, I'd actually like to take a little moment to talk about the Alzheimer's Association and, you know, some of the responsibilities that you've taken on since since joining on the on the organizational or business side of things, certainly helping to accelerate research, enhance care and support, advance public policy, strengthen diversity, equity and inclusion, um, increase concern and awareness and to to grow revenue. Um, let, let's focus on the research side of things, though. <laughs> what have been your main focuses in, um, in research since you stepped into the role of president? Yeah, I, you know, I would say in two words, um, expansion and access. Um, we've taken several initiatives to grow our research footprint and to provide expanded access to scientists globally. During COVID, we really moved quickly to put our scientific conference online, but also realized that hosting in a hybrid format was here to stay. So even though we have, over the last three years, come back to in-person meetings, we maintained that hybrid format because we saw more engagement and more access, and it expanded the ability for people throughout the world to participate not just listening to science, but also presenting their own science. Um, and in addition, we looked at alternative participation options that lowered costs for individuals from low and middle income countries. And as a result, we've really seen increased participation. We saw our largest numbers at our Alzheimer's Association International Conference this summer with over 12,000 participants um, in Amsterdam and online, while also we ha saw an interesting um, movement to more women being able to participate as well. This year, we had over 60% uh, 
uh, of our participants were women. And you think a lot of that was attributed to offering this hybrid kind of environment or just a change in the, uh, in the arena? I think it's probably a little bit of both. We know there's more money in the Alzheimer's research space, certainly. So that's increased the number of scientists who are going into the field. But we also know that by providing uh, more formats and providing the ability for people to present their science in a hybrid platform, it does allow more access to people who may historically not be able to travel due to other responsibilities. Either way, that is a great statistic. It's really good to hear. Um, Can you speak to a specific initiative or program that you um, have developed at the Alzheimer's Association that you're particularly proud of? um, And how did you go about implementing it? Yeah, there's one thing that I'm uh, really proud of and and happy to get this question. Um, Certainly, Several years ago, we challenged ourselves to think about building evidence for care and support programs that we provide our constituents. We knew from the people we served that our work mattered. We knew in our hearts that the service we provide to families made a difference. But what we wanted to do was set out to prove with the numbers through research studies that looked at the impact um, that we were having an impact. And we looked at a couple of different things. We looked at confidence levels to take action, stress of caregivers um, and individuals who are living with dementia. We worked with a couple of real world-renowned psychosocial researchers to study the interventions we provide on our helpline. So that helpline that has a very low barrier to, per, to receiving care. And we designed some research. We recruited and provided the intervention all in-house within the Alzheimer's Association. And what we learned was that one call to our helpline does truly make a difference in the lives of family members that we serve. So we know that individuals feel more empowered. They feel more able to handle stress uh, and more capable to take actions that they need to in order to provide care for uh, an individual they are caring for or to receive the support they need in the community. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. You know, you've spoken a lot about um, the stress involved with the, the patients and the family, the, uh, the time that people are trying to properly manage, and then the access and the, the way to mitigate them, you know, feeling like they're, they're doing this on their own. Are those the, the, the biggest challenges? Are there, are there other challenges you'd like to make us aware of? And, and how is the association addressing them? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges we have today in this new era of treatment in Alzheimer's disease is that the medical system is not set up in a way to maximize care for those with Alzheimer's or a related dementia. Um, in the U.S., we do not have enough specialists across the country We do not have enough primary care doctors that feel confident about diagnosing and providing care. And our opportunity is to make sure physicians are educated, that they have the advanced practitioners around them that have the skill and knowledge to be supportive, and that the health system itself is providing incentive for quality care 
that results in accurate and timely diagnosis and care. And certainly those are the types of things, really thinking about how does care get delivered that is beneficial for anybody who could benefit from treatment, but it's also beneficial for anybody who is at any stage of the disease. Certainly um, increased diagnosis and the provision of quality care is important regardless of what stage of the disease you're in. And being able to have a health system that knows how to support an individual and provide that care is one of the biggest opportunities we have today. So with those um, challenges staring us in the face and speaking of opportunities in front of us, <laughs> let's kind of look forward here a little bit. Um, it seems like in the upcoming years, um, there's, there is some promise in terms of like an unprecedented number of potential Alzheimer's treatments and development. Um, in your opinion, what is the most promising area of Alzheimer's and dementia research right now and, and why? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We have more uh, dollars in the research uh, you know, pipeline right now. We have more projects, research projects, uh, than we have seen historically. Um, it's an incredibly exciting time in Alzheimer's research. So to pick one is almost like picking among your favorite potential innovations that are out there. But I would say one of the biggest game changers that we have on the horizon are advances that we're seeing in diagnostics, and in particular, blood diagnostics, where we're able to accurately and timely diagnose uh, an individual with Alzheimer's through just a single pinprick uh, on, the, on the finger. We know that diagnostics lead to better care, uh, and we know that certainly blood is a lot more efficient and scalable than PET scans or MRIs. So the ability for us to be able to accurately diagnose with blood will change how many people are able to receive a timely diagnosis, but also it will change what that looks like in primary care into the future. You know, this is one of those things that we thought was far away just even a couple of years ago and the advances that we're rapidly seeing in uh, blood diagnostics has become really exciting and really at the forefront of some of the Alzheimer's research that we're seeing uh, report out. It sounds really exciting and, and really promising. So with that, uh, with that in mind, what are your long-term goals for the Alzheimer's Association and the Alzheimer's impact movement, and how do you plan to achieve them? Yeah, thank you. So one of the things that we have uh, right now as an opportunity within the Alzheimer's Association is uh, to go through a visioning process. You know, what do we want to do in the next, the next decade? What can we impact as an organization? And what do we want to then set smaller strategic plans around uh, over the next several years? So along with the National Board of Directors of the Alzheimer's Association, uh, our senior leadership team and I are, are embarking on a process of really building what does that next 10-year vision look like for us as an organization right now. Given all of the things that we are seeing in the research pipeline, um, it is going to be pretty amazing to think about what we look like into uh, 2035 or so as an organization. Um, but it is nonetheless uh, going to be a great project. You know, one of the important pieces that we think about in public health also is how do you look into community and get feedback from community so that your constituents are 
building along with you what that needs to be. And so we'll be working with our community leadership, our community volunteers to really think about how does Alzheimer's impact them locally and what, ex what changes can we expect in that community landscape as a result of all of this innovation that will be coming to market soon. Okay, excellent. Let's, uh, let's turn the tables back a little bit onto Dr. Joanne Pike. Um, it's interesting, you know, hearing you talk about everything you do in your day to day, because a lot of the activities are, are transferable to other industries even. So what do you think are the most important qualities for a CEO in the nonprofit sector? And how do you think that you personally embody those qualities in your work? You know, one of the things I just mentioned and talked about was the importance of community and the idea that um, listening and hearing what your community needs uh, and what motivates them is important to who we are as an organization, as a nonprofit, but also the direction we need to go. Uh, what's always been important to me is that kind of servant leadership, the idea of inclusion and authenticity and being transparent are important fundamental qualities that I try and nurture in myself, um, not just in my day-to-day -day work, but certainly who I am as a person too. And I think those are the things that help within the nonprofit sector when we really are trying to think about who comes to work for us and who volunteers for us and what motivates them? Um, and what can, what can we use within that and how can we be helpful to, to drive some of that change and behavior that we want to all see within communities and uh, certainly have an impact on the disease globally. So um, to kind of um, end on a, on a couple of big notes here, you know, you've talked a lot about where the excitement and where the opportunities are with, with research and developments going forward with Alzheimer's. And you've talked a bit about the, uh, the problems that we do have in our, in our public um, health sector. So um, one question, you know, have, how have you seen the field of public health, you know, evolve in your, in your 25 years in, in, that, in that arena? And then what trends or um, changes do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I think one of the things that is uh, truly exciting for me to see, and we actually even recently saw this come to life with uh, within the research and scientific community with Alzheimer's, is how does data availability, um, information get processed and used to help plan and integrate with the work that we do in public health broadly? Certainly, COVID was a great example of how can you use live data to inform how we react. Um, just this summer, uh, we saw a publication within Alzheimer's data that was similar, that looked at the county level specific data for diagnosis um, and how, can you, how you use that to plan outreach, uh, resourcing is certainly important and something that We've learned over time to build certainly that data infrastructure, but that's also been game-changing for public health overall, and how we begin to apply that to Alzheimer's is going to be incredibly important. When we think about the health system and the data that comes out of a health system, 
as we think about diagnosis and treatment, that's also another layer that we're going to begin to add into this data integration with what we know about the disease. Uh, you know, early on when we looked at these treatments and the, the rapid expansion of diagnostics that are going to be available, the Alzheimer's Association put a stake in the ground and started building a registry so that we could um, begin to gather this information so that we could provide better and quality, uh, higher quality care to our constituents and also to health systems and physicians. That registry called AllsNet um, has been rolling out, but we're beginning to learn what is that going to look like? How can we use this in a manner that it comes alive so that data not only is one directional where we're taking it, but how can we also then feed that back to the health system so that they can improve the quality of care that they're delivering? So truly, I think that um, data integration and where we are going within public health with the use, the evolution of data is one of the, uh, the fastest and most rapidly growing areas that we can apply to Alzheimer's care. That's very exciting. So I'll, I'll um, kind of put the point on that, uh, that, that data science area with one final you know, far-reaching question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you believe are the most pressing public health issues facing society today? And how can we address those challenges? Yeah, I think there's two there's two things that I think about. Well, I think there are lots of public health challenges that are out there. Certainly one that applies to us and to the US overall is the baby boomer population and the rapid expansion of the number of people who are over 65. The amount of resources, the infrastructure that we're going to need to serve that population um, will certainly be a critical inflection point for us, not just in health system, but in community care as well. And really thinking about what does um, what does that population need as they age into not just the highest risk factor for Alzheimer's, but certainly other chronic diseases as well. And what is that um, what is that going to do to our health system? I think one of the things that we need to think about and how do we address those challenges is, you know, there are innovations in the pipeline that will help us build an understanding of how to provide care. I think uh, certainly artificial intelligence is providing us all kinds of opportunities with um, delivering better care, understanding who our constituents are overall. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see how do we how do we take some of those digital advances and apply it to the rapidly shifting uh, population of need within medicine? And then just another one that I think has been increasingly important coming out of COVID is the integrity of science and the importance of making sure that people trust um, information that is being delivered around public health and uh, science overall. I think this, it's an incredibly important um, area for all of us to consider how can we be better stewards of evidence, um, of public health evidence, of scientific integrity, and to make sure that um, we think about it and address it in a way that is important for our employees, for our consumers as well. Okay, well, um, I really want to thank you, Joanne, for your insight and, and time and, and, for, and for the amazing work that you are doing. 
I think it was useful for our audience to to understand this all better. And I think we'd like to have a little bit of fun with you, if that's okay, and give you some <laughs> of our rapid fire questions so we get to know you it. a little bit better. So I'm just going to drill you with those and uh, answer as you see fit. So first <laughs> rapid fire question is coffee or tea? Coffee, absolutely. <laughs> Dogs or cats? Dogs. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Well, for today, given the heat outside, I'm going mountains. Dream vacation destination. Uh, I would love to go, speaking of mountains, to go to Patagonia. Book you most recommend? There's an interesting book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. It's focused on the, the intersection of culture and medicine. Best piece of advice you have ever received? That's a big one. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, right. You could, you could think about, but I think the one that, uh, I try to, to do something every day is make myself uncomfortable. What is your professional mantra? Make every decision with your constituent in mind. And then if you could say something to your younger self, what would you say? Uh, trust myself, trust yourself. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today, Joanne, and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org. <laughs>